Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome and thank you for tuning in today. This is Henrik and it's good to be back with you once again. We uh, had some traveling to do at the end of last week into this one. So we had to skip a couple of shows to be able to keep up with everything going on. So uh, we say thank you to everyone who tunes in regularly for understanding. You know, we never really take breaks from the show, not even over Christmas, New Year's or Easter. So I'm sure you're cool with us going out there, getting some footage for future projects. So anyway, if you're new to this show, tuning in for the first time, or just stumble across us, the best place to check us out is at RedEyesCreations.com. Go there for radio shows, news, videos, and more. We uh, return to today not on an easy note. We're going to hit you off with a heavy topic. I wish it was something else, but uh, in all sincerity, the topic we'll be discussing today is something that we've put off for way too long here on Red Eyes Radio. But we all know how the media lie distorts things and gives us the wrong information and use it for purposes sometimes very clear to us and other times not so clear. Well, it's safe to say that the lies about South Africa and the Boer people in particular have been one of distortion from day one, ever since the British turned on them. Today we have a long show for you. We've made it into one segment so that you can hear the full story. It's just uh, too important and urgent as well. Our guest is Karen Smith. She's an expat South African living in Texas. She studied nursing at Grace Hospital in Pietermaritzburg and worked in the casino industry and for the biggest supermarket chain in South Africa, both upper management positions dealing with the unions. She has been an activist calling for world attention to the genocide of the Boer people in Africa for at least 10 years. Her family fled the civil war in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe and eventually settled as a farmer in South Africa, where her family of five siblings and both parents have suffered attacks by AK-47-wielding gangs twice in the last three years, resulting in the death of her father last September. And as always, folks, uh, hear our guests out and look into it for yourself. If you dig deep enough, you'll find that there is a wall of lies that has been in place for over two decades now, preventing you or anyone else from knowing the real story of the horrors of what is happening in the Rainbow Nation. Well, here's a chance for you to get a glimpse of the other side that they never tell you about. Welcome, Karen. Thank you so much for coming on with us. It's uh, good to speak with you. Hope you're uh, doing okay today. Thank you very much, Henrik, for giving me this opportunity to spread the word about the disaster that the Rainbow Nation has become and the problems that the poor whites in South Africa are suffering. Yeah, you bet. This is a huge topic. We have a lot to discuss and a lot of different facets to this. And, and obviously, as always, we have to kind of set the, the framework a little bit for our audience as well so they understand what we're talking about here. But I mean, I think just at, at the outset here, we can just preface this by saying, as, as we know in the, in the alternative media, we know that the media always gives us the, the full story. And whatever they say is, of course, gospel. And we should never question it and just take everything at face value, which is why I've had such a difficult time with some in the alternative uh, who just don't understand that certain things that are told to us are just simply not true and they end up repeating many many of these lies and one of the big ones of course is about what is happening in South Africa and what has happened uh, there from the from the beginning pretty much and and how history has been used been used against the Europeans who who came there in the in the early days but before we dive into the present situation and talk about what actually is happening right now, give us a little bit of, of the background story and tell us how Europeans to begin with ended up in South Africa. Well, 
Um, the first people to even look at South Africa were the Portuguese. They came and did a few sorties inland and decided they didn't like the Cape of Good Hope and they moved on and settled Mozambique and Angola. And then the Dutch East India Company desperately needed a refreshment station for the ships going around the Cape of Good Hope, Good Hope to, the, to the east um, on the Spice Route. So they sent Jan van Riebeck in 1652 to not to colonize South Africa, but to open a refreshment station for the ships passing. So he was, he was the first South African governor, as it were, and there were a lot of indentured servants that were planting uh, vegetable farms, etc., for the ships. Now, when they landed there, there were no blacks in South Africa whatsoever. There was one little group of blacks who are not really the big pitch black uh, African warriors that one thinks about Africa being infested with. They were small, little, short, light-skinned, almost of the Bushman tribe, and they were called the Khoi Khoi, which means the men of men. They were a very small tribe, and they were the only, only indigenous tribe of South Africa when Jan van Riebeck landed. So they started growing vegetables and trading uh, with the Khoi Khoi for beef, and um, eventually the indentured service had servants had paid off their indenturedness and started striking out to get farms of their own. So that is how it started being colonized in the Cape Colony. Well, there was a ruckus between the, the Dutch and the British, and the British took over the Cape Colony. And the Afrikaner settlers, they, they were the original Dutch settlers there. Well, and what, what year are we talking about here approximately? Um, about a hundred years after the first settlement at the Cape. Mm -hmm. um, the British took over and the, the, the Boers, who have been very independent, religious, free thinkers all their lives, didn't like the liberal attitude of the British. They thought they were far too liberal. And they also didn't want to pay taxes to the British. So they got into their covered wagons and they trekked inland to get away from this liberal rule. And on the way, so this is now 120 years after the first settlement in the Cape. On their, on their treks north and northeast, they met up with the Zulu nation who had been coming south throughout Africa. And on their way, annihilating, annihilating all the black tribes in their path, enslaving the women and children and killing the men and stealing the cattle. Now, they had wiped out hundreds of thousands of blacks on their way south. And they met the, the Boers who were going north. They met them at a kind of a natural barrier that occurs in South Africa between the lovely sort of semi-Mediterranean um, areas up north and the colder, more barren areas down south. And the Boers and they met um, the halfway, as I say, and had some horrific, horrific clashes with the Zulus. Um, one a case in point being the Battle of Blood River, which was a historic a, a battle which has never been equaled in the history of mankind, where five, approximately 500 Boers knew that they were going to have to fight the Zulu. So they got on their knees and they prayed for seven days and say, God, if you give this battle into our hands, we, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, will celebrate this day, will dedicate it to you for all eternity. Well, these 500 Boers, all men, because they didn't want to bring their women and children into this battle, they had a, a circle of wagons, and in the wagon wheels, they put uh, thorn bushes so the Zulu warriors can't crawl into the middle um, through the wheels. And they fought off between 15 and 20,000 black Zulu warriors who came at them from all sides. At the end of the day, they found, well, they documented three and a half thousand dead Zulu, but I don't think they counted all of them. And not one, not one Boer was killed in that battle. 
Three of them were lightly wounded, but as for the rest of that 500 who fought 15 to 20,000 Zulus, not one died. Now, in the history of the world, there has never been a battle like that or with a result like that. So that day is commemorated until today, but the blacks in South Africa are trying to prevent it from being um, commemorated any further. Uh, it's called the Day of Remembrance. It's celebrated on the 16th of December. And the, the Afrikaners gather at the Fuertrecker Monument in Pretoria, and they pray and have church services throughout the country on that day to commemorate it in honor of their promise to God. Mm. So that was one of the major battles where they really defeated the Zulu. And uh, the Zulu took a beating and were very, very nervous of the whites after that. It was 1838, by the way, for those who don't know. Yes. Yep. Um, and so back the, the Boers then decided that they would go and speak to the king of the Zulus and ask him for a piece of land that would belong to them, where they would literally have a ceasefire, cease they would be self-ruling, and the blacks would, would not attack them on this piece of land. So Petrotiv and a couple of uh, um, South African Boers went to meet with the king. And they had a whole days of celebration, etc., etc., and the king agreed to it. And Petrotiv tucked this piece of paper, well, parchment, I should imagine, where the king had put his thumbprint and agreed to the piece of land that the Boers would have from him. On a piece of paper, he tucked it into a leather satchel. Well, that same night, the... Zulu king stood up and yelled, Burala Tugati, which means kill the white wizards. And his men descended on this deputation of Boers and slaughtered the whole lot of them. But that piece of parchment with his, his thumbprint on it survived that battle. So the, the original land where the Boers settled was bought from the Zulu king for them to settle, settle on, although... At that time, the land was not owned by anybody because the blacks and the whites were both immigrant settlers in that land. Mm -hmm. We're bypassing a lot of history here, but the Boers set up two republics, the Republic of the Orange Free State and the Republic of the Transvaal. And those were their own little countries which were acknowledged by the rest of the world, and they were uh, ruled by themselves. And... They didn't have very many huge towns because they were a farming community. They obviously were towns because that's where all trade happens and bartering, etc. But then gold and diamonds were found. Now, the British had colonized uh, Natal, and they looked at this gold and, and diamonds in the Boer communities, and they thought, no, this is a total threat to Britain's um, colonization policy, these people are going to get too rich, rich and become difficult. <laughs> and that is how the two Boer Wars, start, Boer Wars started. Yeah, didn't like the British, largely they kind of pulled out and said, ah, you know what, we, we don't have too much interest in it. Then their resources were, were found and immediately they went back in there, right? Exactly. Yeah. They kind of left these two little, little republics alone to rule themselves, to get on with it themselves, because they were no threat to anybody. They were subsistence farmers and very rural communities. They, they were no, and they were small, so they were no threat to anybody. So the British had left them alone. But then gold was found in the Transvaal and diamonds were found in the Free State. And the British uh, saw this as a, a quick money-making scheme for their colonial efforts, and the Boer were, wars were fought. Now, the First Boer War, the Boers lost. They, they fought by guerrilla tactics, and the, the, they lost that one. Now, the Second Boer War, which is the most important one, well, I, I'm sorry, I can't think of the year right now. But anyway, uh, the, the British brought in troops from Britain. This, this was a guaranteed one-on-one, face-to-face, huge war going to happen. But the Boers did not have that kind of structure. The commandos that they fought in were not paid by the state. They were not um, organized by the state. They were farmers. So they had to take their own weapon, their own ammunition, and eight days' supplies in their saddlebags when they went to war. Now, they rode little Boer ponies, 
they had tattered earth-colored clothes that were obviously made at home, and they did not go to war in the way that the British did with their red jackets and their drums beating, etc., etc. So these Boers uh, did guerrilla attacks on the Boer, uh, on the British um, supply lines and on the British. So the British never knew where they were going to be hit or where these Boers were going to come from next. But as in the South, uh, in the Civil War, the Boers, every farmer was their friend. So they could go to a farm at any time, replenish their supplies, get a good night's sleep, and then go back to fighting. When the British realized this, they realized that every farmhouse was a supply line for the Boer commandos. So they went in, <coughs> excuse me, and instituted a scorched earth policy. They burnt the farms, they salted the earth, they killed the cattle, they imprisoned the women, children, and elderly who were left behind on the farms and put them in concentration camps. Now, those British concentration camps were an absolute travesty of, well, uh, when we get to it later, you will see that the, the, the squatter camps today with the white slope are exactly the same kind of thing. Mm. But they, the British um, didn't take care of these people at all. They lived, if, if they had a cover over their heads at all, they lived in tents. They suffered from malnutrition. They died of starvation, cholera, typhoid all kinds of horrific diseases because the British didn't really care about them at all. So the Boers got discouraged because they, they were fighting this war to keep their families safe and free, and their families were dying like flies. 20% of the Boer population died in those concentration camps. So the Boers flew the white flag of surrender, um, in order to, to stop any further deaths amongst the women and children. Well, they, they informed the Union of South Africa, the British did, and the Boers were uh, supposedly on, in control of their own two little republics. They were uh, under British rule, but were allowed to run those two republics um, by their own laws, their own moral standards, etc., but they had to pay ta taxes and things to the Brits. Well, around that same time, uh, Barney Bonato and Cecil John Rhodes uh, rose to fame, and they started buying up all the little diggings in the diamond and gold fields until they became a huge big conglomerate, um, which was the Beers and Anglo-American, um, the diamonds and the gold. And Britain was getting rich off of all of these things. Yep. So, so that's essentially the, the, the history of the South African Boer, who has always, only ever, wanted a place where he could live with his own religion, his own language, and be free of the rules imposed by the rest of the world which do not sit well with them. And to this day, that is all that the Afrikaner wants. He doesn't want to rule anybody else. He doesn't want to be somebody else's boss. He just wants to be boss of his own life. Well, it shows a little bit of the nuanced uh, infighting during the colonial times of European history as well. We um, Today, I would say we get a very simplified uh, version of history and it's it's almost it's almost turned into such a simplified thing that it's almost like well you know it was kind of it was the Europeans like the the white race against everyone else and they wanted to subjugate them under under their rule you know which is <laughs> it's just ridiculous I mean the, this shows that it was like there was tons of infighting between the different colonial powers and they didn't do anything because it was like oh they had a racial uh, you know a brotherhood sense of we're going to take care of each other against you know the black man or the brown man or anything ridiculous like that this was very evident that the the interest was on a completely different le level than than on a racial level yes yes but another interesting point that people need to understand is that the apartheid laws which the whole world stood up against after 1948 when when the national party took over south africa those laws were instituted as early as 1913 by the British, not by the Afrikaners. The British instituted laws 
where you could not in, have interracial marriage, where where um, blacks had to live separately, etc. They instituted that. The British did that. So when the, when the National Party took over in 1948, and South Africa became the Republic of South Africa, they, in an act of self-defense. Because by that time, the black hordes had become, uh, had outnumbered the white Boers. So in an act of self-defense, they tightened up those segregation laws uh, to maintain their white space where they lived uh, and keep them secure against the hundreds of thousands of blacks. Because by that time, there were cities, there were areas of commercial um, uh, richness. Success, yeah. Yes, a, a huge success th that the blacks wanted to take advantage of. So they were pouring in from all over Africa to try and be become a part of this commercial good life. And so the, the, the white South Africans said, look, there are very, very few of us, and we have to keep ourselves and our way of living safe. So what they did was they they gave each black tribe their own homeland. So the Zulus got Zululand, and the Vendors got um, oh well, they got Venda, yes, mm -hmm. and the Kozas got Kozaland, and the Basutu uh, I can't remember what tribe got Baputswana, but in any case. They each got their own homeland. And these were not pieces of land in the middle of the desert where nothing grew. Because Zululand, which is still ruled by a Zulu king to this day, is one of the most fertile, most incredible places in South Africa. They, they, they were given good land where things grew, where minerals were found, where mining was happening. The South African white taxpayer paid for infrastructure, roads, hospitals, schools, universities, airstrips, um, you name it, the South, uh, electricity, running water, sewerage, all of those things were paid for by the very small white tax base in South Africa. And many of the blacks today benefited immensely from that because they were educated. None of the black tribes had any written language whatsoever. They had not invented the wheel. They did not ride horses. They did not have uh, cities or or anything that was of any use. They used to pick up their huts when they'd graze the area flat, put their, fold their little huts up, put them over their back, and go and look for the next patch of green grass. So those people owned nothing did nothing, they they now wanted to flock into the white areas and be part of the white expansion, the white uh, creativity. Now, so let me ask you uh, quickly here. You said, yeah, so 19, about 1948, the Republic of South Africa was created. Was when when the uh, when this was, well, carved up, I guess, for the lack of a better term. Was, was the British involved in that or was this solely uh, what South Africa did at the time? Was anyone else involved in that, do you know? Um, the British were involved in what happened. With, with they, the British, you have to understand, had an, a major, major, major impact on what happens in South Africa. Yeah. South Africa is still ruled by the British British law system. I mean, it, it's, it's really funny to see these black judges, etc., with their little white curly wigs on their heads. Um, the parliamentary system of Britain is still used in South Africa by mm -hmm. the British government. So Britain had an enormous, enormous impact on South Africa. And they had a say in everything. Um, as you know, they, they had a say in handing South Africa over to the ANC government uh, yep. 50 years after uh, the, it was, uh, the, the South African government was formed. So yes, they did have a big say in it, but the, the Boers tried to be fair. They did not want to rule the blacks at all. They just wanted their own place. But by default, when South Africa was handed over to them in 1948 by the British, they became the rulers of all this whole black, black country where they were besieged and outnumbered. 
So, so segregation really was a form of self-defense for the South Africans. So it was like um, a, they, they were they were spearheading this idea a little bit that a minority should be protected as they are protected in other European countries today. But hindsight, then, if we take the uh, the, the mainstream view here, despite that the fact that they were a minority. No, they shouldn't have been protected at all, it seems like. It seems like they should have just picked up and, and, and left what they fought for, it seems like, right? Well, it would seem that way, and to this very day, that same story is being told, that they must go away. Right. But these were hardy people. Um, they had fled from, from, well, the French Huguenots, for instance, had fled from, from religious persecution. Right, yep. Um, in, in, um, they, they had fled from France to, to the Netherlands and then came... Well, they went all over the world, um, but the ones that came to South Africa, they planted the first vines and uh, wine farms in South Africa, which exists to this day, with some of the best wines in the world made there. So they were a polyglot of people. They weren't just Dutch. They were French. They were Portuguese. They were Germans because we had German German East Africa, which is now Namibia, became Southwest Africa and then Namibia. So they were all kinds of European people mixed together, but still very, very few of them because South Africa is big and they were settled widely. I mean, from the Cape right up to the borders of Zimbabwe. And they didn't really want to be townies or, or commercial people. They just wanted to farm. So they were scattered. And they yeah, were... But what, that area, I'm just looking at a map now to explain to our audience too. It's basically like... Well, what can we say, like Germany, Poland, Holland, Belgium, maybe all put together or something like that? It's it's, it's a big area, yeah. Yes, it is. It, it's a little bit bigger than Texas. So I, mm -hmm. because I live in Texas. That's how I equate it for a, an American audience because they can understand better that way. It is bigger than Texas, but not by very much. So, mm. all right. So these, these, these boys then inherited this whole mess left to them by the British. And they did the best they could to make sure that every tribe, because don't forget, these tribes warred with each other. They hated each other. They were warring tribes, yeah. wiping each other off. So in order to protect the tribes from each other and the whites from the blacks, the government then tightened up the apartheid rules. And, well... Well, ex explain to us, I, I know there might be more you want to, uh, you know, detail for yeah. us there, and please go ahead, but... Also explain what that what that means. What 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 was apartheid? Apartheid, in in its translation, means separateness. So apartheid, at the root of apartheid is a separate development, separate but self-ruled for all, for all. So no matter who you were, you lived separately and you ruled yourself by your own rules and morals and ethics. You spoke your own language and whatever, but the whites would at the same time help you to come into the, the, the modern century by giving you hospitals and roads and, and schools and clinics and everything free, just by the way, in the black homelands. Everything was free. Not so much for the white people who lived there. So separate development is basically what apartheid is. And uh, we had it here in, in the States. It was segregation. It's the same thing. The blacks were not allowed to go into white hotels. They were not allowed to, they were whites-only benches. They were whites-only um, waiting rooms. They were whites-only toilets. But at the same time, they were blacks-only as well. So right. they were side by side. It wasn't that the black was just left, well, I need the toilet and I've got nowhere to go. No, he had his own places in the white areas, not just in his homeland, in the white areas. But there were very strict rules, uh, like white by night. The white suburbs in the towns in South Africa were white by night. And if a black were to be found on the street there, the police would arrest him and demand to know why he was there. So there was a pass system instituted. And this is one of the biggest, the, the starters of the biggest problems in South Africa, where the Dompas is what the the blacks called them, the stupid pass. Now they had to carry this at all times, and if they were found without it, they would be arrested and thrown into jail. And if they were found where they shouldn't be at a time where they shouldn't be, they would be arrested and thrown into jail, and they would be left to explain what they were doing there. 
And this was to keep the white suburbs free of these marauding blacks um, during the nighttime hours. But at the same time, what the world does not tell you is that the whites also had to carry a pass, an ID book. You had to have it on you at all times. You have a number given to you at your birth, your identity number, and that number sticks with you until you die. And um, in your identity book was put your birth certificate, your firearm license, your driver's license, your marriage certificate, your name and address. Everything pertaining to your life was in that book, and you had to have it with you at all times. Uh, so, sorry, let me explain something here as well, because you raise a very important point that the the idea of, of separateness is something that, I mean, people have to you know, take away the association that we have to this today. And you have to understand the historical background to this. That This is what the Brit British did. They, when they came into certain areas, even when they pulled out actually in an effort to try to um, have some kind of stability when they left. And again, we can think whatever we want about this, but the fact is another example is look at how they uh, carved up India and Pakistan, for example, these were not areas that were, uh, you know, divided in that way before. They said, well, okay, you're a Muslim population, Pakistanis, you need to go up here. And, you know, the rest of the Hindus and, uh, and other religions go down to India. And it was an effort to try to, it was just a mentality of the time. It wasn't, uh, I think we have a different relationship to it today of, of thinking, oh my God, they're like tr trying to prevent people from living together. It was, a, it was an effort, whether it was right or wrong, but it was an effort to try to create conditions where people could live in relative peace. Uh, I, th I think considering how how um, how instrumental the British had been anyway in terms of uh, kind of uprooting the, the the normality of a lot of these people. The British were very technologically advanced. They, in some cases, set up different types of governments and whatnot. So I think it was an effort to do something good. And I think that's also is the, is the system that came out of uh, uh, or, or that was imposed on South Africa as well, I think, Karen. Uh, absolutely, um, Hendrik. It was like that, but but it was it, it was a, a thing of the times. That exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Those times. Yes, we look at it very differently today, with shock and horror. But at the time, that was how things were done, and the British had the biggest empire in the entire world. They ruled, and what they said happened. Yep. That was the end of it. Their laws were followed, and so they left the the Boers with this system in place. Now, those words had never known anything different. That, that is how life was, and that's how it was supposed to be. And you have to understand that the, the Boers as well have always thought of themselves as a lost tribe of Israel. Now, whether correctly or incorrectly, I'm not commenting on that. I'm simply saying that that is what they have always considered themselves, wandering in the desert with no place to call their home, and that they have been oppressed and murdered and hurt and damaged and they still do not have a place to call their own. And, and that is part of the belief system of the Boers. So they, have, they felt that they had a right to exist in a country which they had built from absolute bush. There was nothing there when they got there. And from that, they built up the modern South Africa which was the powerhouse of the entire Africa. And Africa is enormous. People don't realize that. But I mean, all the countries of the world just about fit into Africa with room to spare. Yeah. And uh, the, the South Africa, this tiny little, little place on the southernmost tip of Africa was the powerhouse of that huge continent. They had everything. They have they are strategically very important to the rest of the world because they have every mineral known to mankind. Um, they have silver, they have gold, they have potassium, they have uh, steel, they, they have everything, copper, everything is found in South Africa except the one thing that to run a modern country you need, which is gas. We do not have gas, known as gas in, in, in the States, known as petrol, in South Africa, we do not have that. And that was one of the biggest drawbacks when sanctions were were imposed against us. But this little race of people, hardy, hardworking, God-fearing, 
um, independent, stubborn, stubborn as mules, people, built that little piece of land into an absolute paradise. Because South Africa, again, this year, was voted the most beautiful country in the world. We have from subtropical to snowy mountains where you can ski. We have the most beautiful golden beaches in the entire world. On the, on the eastern side of South Africa, we have warm currents coming down from Mozambique, so the sea is warm. It is, it is an incredibly beautiful country, but it was barren. And the Boers built it into a powerhouse. They, they produced food for almost the whole of Africa. They, they, what came out of South Africa is incredible. Thinking of the small population and, and the, the problems that they were suffering, they did an incredible, incredible, huge job. But the uncivilized blacks who had never been introduced to this kind of way of life wanted a part of it. Now, there were not enough whites to do all the work that was required to build this country up. So we hired them in the mines and building streets, doing the work. We needed them because there were not enough whites to do that. And they were being paid a decent wage. And the, the Africana uh, nation has always been very, uh, a very patriarchal nation. So if you had a black servant, they were kind of your child. You had to look after them. So on the farms, they were given homes, they were given food, they were given medical care, and they were given a small salary as well at the end of the month. And they were part of the family as such. The, 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 the Boer patriarch took responsibility for their health, their welfare, their studies, their everything. And there was work for everybody, and everybody was doing quite well, thank you very much. So that, that little, oh, and, and I have to tell you as well that Afrikaans is one of only three languages which has been declared a modern language and accepted as a language in the last couple of centuries. It is one of only three uh, languages that have been accepted as a real language. So the Afrikaana and Afrikaans are a tribe of people with their own internationally accepted language. Mm -hmm. They are not just some little white tribe that are out there to murder, kill, destroy, and and steal. Right. Yep. And then I need to say this as well, because during the apartheid era, it was said that the whites were slaughtering blacks by their hundreds of thousands. That is an absolutely untrue piece of nonsense. During the 40, 50 years of the apartheid regime, there were an average of 7,036 murders per year recorded in South Africa. And since then, that murder rate has gone up to 135,000 plus per year because one can never get a real figure of how many there really are. So, 7,000 a year, and that included black-on-black -black murders. That was not uh, white on black, it was black on black murders. So the story that, that apartheid had to come to an end because these terrible Boers were killing the blacks by their hundreds of thousands is also absolute nonsense. And those figures can be looked up because they set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission when they ended apartheid and the blacks themselves put those figures out of 7,000 per year every mm -hmm. case. Right. So that is another story that really needs to be hit on the head because it is not true. Yeah, I definitely want to talk more about that here. But let's let's just kind of run through a little bit of how how this came to an end, basically, and some of the political interests behind this. We have, of course, a uh, we linked up a video recently of how these very proud white British people were talking about how they were helping to to ship in. Uh, guns in this bus or the truck whatever I, for, I forget the name what it was called but it was a very 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 interesting to see the mentality of these people how, how self-righteous they were that they had helped to bring this horrible political system down but tell us about the ANC tell us about Joe Slovo tell us about the the the, the communist uh, faction to this of, of of what you think was the political interest uh, part of bringing down the system that was uh, that had been set up by the British and, and handed down to the, the Boer? 
Well, uh, yeah, that, that is a whole different story. So we need to start with the icon, this icon of peace who has statues all over the world and who everybody worships as if he were a god, Nelson Mandela. Right. Because that is the one South African that everybody knows about. And um, everybody has got a very, very, very wrong impression about that man. So Nelson Mandela is a, a vendor and he grew up in South Africa and he became a lawyer under the this terrible oppressive apartheid regime where he got an education and became a lawyer. I don't, I, I don't want to speak to how he became politically involved with anything, but he was a terrible, terrible man. He was a communist. His agenda was to slaughter as many whites as possible and to take the country over for his black brethren. Now, when, when he was taken to court, and this you can Google as well, because the entire transcript of his trial is available online. He was accused of 156 plus crimes of murder, treason, and uh, traitorous acts. And he pleaded guilty. He, he had pleaded guilty to 156 of those charges against him. So he didn't even contest them. And when they went to, to um, investigate what arms and ammunition he had, this man was responsible for warehouses full of limpet mines, grenades, etc., etc. So his agenda was definitely not a bush war. It was a war on the white civilian population. That is what he intended. And he is directly responsible for thousands upon thousands of white deaths where the ANC bombed restaurants, um, um, police stations, train stations, etc. He was directly responsible for that because he was the founder of the armed wing of the ANC, which is called MK. And he arranged for them to be trained by the Cubans and the Russians in the countries surrounding South Africa. Now, mainly in Angola, they were, which borders onto Southwest Africa, now Namibia, they were being trained by Cubans and Russians. A lot of the ex black exiles from South Africa were sent to Russia, to the Patrice Mumba University there, and they were trained in, in terrorist tactics there as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know what kind of degrees they actually got there, but I know they came back fully, fully trained terrorists. So our white boys in South Africa during those years, there was conscri conscription in place. And after school, they had to serve either two or three years in the army and then do a month to three months army camps every year in perpetuity after that until such time as they were not needed. So all three of my brothers uh, fought the Angolan war on the borders of uh, Southwest Africa. And now many of our guys were killed in that war, maimed, um, legs blown off as in every war, those kind of things happen. And it's important to note the absolute alliance of the ANC with communist Cuba and communist Russia at that time. Mm -hmm. So we were fighting war wars on, on all our borders, and at the same time, the rest of the world, uh, for political reasons best known to themselves, uh, I think it was a, a ploy once more, the money in South Africa and the riches of South Africa and the mineral rights in South Africa came into play. And the USA, um, Britain, most European countries formed an alliance and put sanctions, very, very, very strict sanctions against South Africa. So we could not get anything from the outside world. And the Boers being their very creative, very incredible people, they just said, okay, well, we're not going to lie down and die because of this. We'll do it ourselves. So there are many things that we did during those years. Our arms school, which was our, our research and development uh, arm of, the military things, they created helicopters and uh, staff transport and tanks and guns and all kinds of airplanes as well, which the rest of the world 
uh, bypass sanctions, especially France. They bypass the sanctions upon South Africa in order to get their hands on this incredible um, modern weaponry that had been developed and made in South Africa. Uh, we did the first heart transplant in the world, which is a little aside since mm. the ANC have taken over. A black guy who worked in the operating theaters with Chris Barnard, who did the first operation, has now claimed the credit for doing that operation. Mm. Um, so they're trying to take even that away from the whites in South Africa, but that's just a little, a little aside. It's not that important. Um, we didn't have, we did not have gas, petrol, as I've already said. Right. So, and we needed it desperately because you cannot run a country or an army without that. So what the Boers did, we have an overabundance of coal. So they discovered a way to make petrol out of coal. And that was how Sassel, one of the enormous powerhouse industries in South Africa, was formed. Um, under duress from the rest of the world, we said, okay, watch this, and created everything we needed for ourselves. But it is very hard for a, a country which is supporting all these black tribes in their own homelands on a very small taxpayer base and doing no business or commerce with anyone else in the world, it is very hard for them to have available money because where are you getting from? You're recycling that taxpayer's money all the time. It's not coming from anywhere else. So yeah, the no, no one was, was trading with you and everything was, no. was cut off to you. and yeah. No, we, we, we had no foreign money coming in. So the money that was in the country was being recycled and recycled and recycled, but there was there was no room for, for growth, as it were. So we were under siege because we were fighting wars on our borders. We were under siege because the, the world hated us. We were under incredible media hatred, yes. absolute hatred. We became ashamed to be white, to be South African. We, we couldn't compete internationally in any sports. We couldn't, we, we couldn't have technology or music or anything. I mean, they were doing concerts where they were waving their lighters in the air and, and swearing blind they would never come and play in South Africa. So we didn't have any contact with the outside world. And I think we were stagnating, but that's a personal opinion. Right. But I do feel we were stagnating because we were cut off. We were a little country all on our own, um, left to our own devices, and the only people that we had interaction with were ourselves. So it was so, it was basically like a you you were hated, um, and we'll get in more detail to this. But basically, because you were trying to do something which was going completely against the the narrative of the times of moving towards you know globalism and and multiculturalism, and it has to be just in this particular way. Uh -huh. uh, and you guys were doing it in. Uh, you know, keep keep doing what what uh, you know you inherited from the British, basically. And this is I mean, how what, what what do people need to know about the conditions at the time of what existed? I mean, as you said, we, we, there was incredible um, you know propaganda in the media that there was murders committed by uh, by whites against blacks, and there was like a, a horrible oppression and all. Is 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 any of that true? Um, Hendrik, I would say some of it is true. That, that I will explain that to you. As I said to you, the murder rate was 7,000 7, per annum. And that was mainly black-on-black -black murder. Um, White-on-black murder was practically unheard of. We did have a repressive government because they were so forced into controlling everything. They had to in order to keep a grip on the situation. But it began going south, I think, in 1976, when the Soweto riots happened. Now, these black children were living in a, in a poor suburb, which was a, a black suburb. Soweto has always been a black suburb, mm. um, in a white area in, in Johannesburg. So it was in a white city, but on the outskirts of the city. Now, they had schools, and they didn't want to be taught in Afrikaans. They wanted to be taught in their own languages. Now, you have to understand that even today, there are no school books written in Zulu and Kosa and Venda and Sotu. And there are no school books written in those languages. 
So they demanded that they be taught in their own language. Now, when the blacks riot in South Africa from, from days of old to up to today, they go really crazy. They burn things, they loot, they break their stone cars, they kill each other, they, they, are, they revert to barbarism when they, when they riot. So these um, rioters put the school children in front of the, the march and set out to burn and destroy everything in sight. So the police were obviously called in and it became an absolute disaster because the defense force was called in and some black children were killed. And that was the beginning of the awful, awful press and the awful struggles for the white South Africans. Now, I suppose it could have been handled better, but you have to remember that, that South Africa was at war on all our borders. We were not officially at war internally, but we were having bombs uh, exploded in, in, in our suburbs, in our restaurants. Um, it was a war zone. Mm. So the South African government used war uh, tactics on this riot. Well, those pictures of that black school kid that was killed went viral. They went all over the world. And the world turned on us and said, okay, you people are killing children. You're not just killing blacks now. You are killing children. Right. And you are beyond the pale. We are going to destroy you. Yeah. If you do not stop, we will destroy you. So when the um, under Ronald Reagan in the 80s, I think it was, um, the Congress here had a vote to institute severe sanctions against South Africa, which uh, Ronald Reagan vetoed, and they overcame his veto. So then some really severe sanctions were instituted, and we started, we started battling. But the slaughter of the blacks is not a true thing at all, because throughout the history of South Africa, the major crime is black on black to this day. The major crime is black on black. And in, in to some figures that I looked at the other day, there has been absolutely zero, zero white on black rape this year or in previous years, and maybe five white on black murders in the past three years. So you cannot say that the whites are these murderous, awful people who are just there to be white nationalists and, and wipe out the black population. It is just not, history does not support that view of life. Well, I, I think that as a microcosm is, is kind of, to a certain extent, something we're, we're moving into. I, I want people to put that in perspective. But, but this aspect that we no longer are in a world where we basically can go somewhere and create something and build something and set that up for ourselves. And, and also then consequently that the building of those things um, we do for our own as an incentive to create something. We're, we're in that environment now. Basically, you didn't build that. You didn't create that. And whatever you did, if you actually achieved it, it was obviously on the backs of someone else or you stole it. And therefore, you know, you need to share it with everyone. And I mean, to a certain extent, that's I mean, not as severe, of course, but that's kind of what's happening in starting to happen in, in Europe right now, where we are beginning to, uh, it, we can no longer just basically create something for ourselves and, and hold it and keep it. It's somehow something we have to share with the rest of the world, right? Well, you know, Henrik, what I say is this. The, the, the black Africa threw out the colonialists, the settlers. They threw them all out of every country. And now they have reduced those countries to to the dark ages. There is nothing left of what the whites created there. And where are the blacks going now? They are infiltrating, well, not even infiltrating, because they are flooding in by their hundreds of thousands to those self-same white countries that they hate so much. Right. But do they go there to, to integrate, to contribute, to do a single damn thing that's good for the country? No. They are going there to turn that country into the same wasteland that they've turned their own countries into. Yeah. So, so does it make any sense? And if we stand up and say anything, we are racist, we are Islamophobes, we are, we, we are horrible people. Yeah. So we're not allowed to defend ourselves even verbally 
against this onslaught on our beliefs, our values, our things. Let's take that in the opposite extreme direction. What what do we need to do to, let's say, please others? And and so we can't work for ourselves. We can't build something up and, and create it for ourselves. Obviously, it needs to be shared or something. But I mean... W- when when will when will there be a, a a situation where the the opposition here is satisfied if you will <laughs> when will they when will they say oh this is a good situation let's let's keep it at that and let's work together i mean is that ever going to happen the and henrik this is once more just my own opinion i i could be very wrong i don't have any any facts and figures to back it up with but my opinion is that they want the entire world to be coffee colored um to be no more whites um to to dumb us down to the lowest common denominator, because equality, to me, I've watched it all over the world. Equality does not mean lifting up the bottom people. It means bringing the top people down yeah. to the common denominator of the lowest level of intelligence, of, of education, of creativity, of uh, decency, of morality. We all have to come down to the lowest level and sink into the sewers of the world and then maybe it'll all be equal and all be good enough. Yeah, equally uh, equally uh, miserable, I guess. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, and, and it disturbs me terribly that, that the incredible things that have been created, done, found, music, literature, art, all of those things have no value in that world. So... We are going back into the dark ages. Yeah. Let me ask you a little bit about uh, some of the things that have been occurring now then in, in South Africa and, and what, the, what, what, what things are like today and, and what, um, what all the things that we don't hear about, basically. I mean, what, one of the things that's been ongoing for many years now is the, the tearing down of those who did build the country into what it is, the... the uh, you know, parks are renamed, schools are changed named, the statues are torn down, all of these things are happening. I think the most recent one is the Cecil Rhodes statue was, was taken down and everyone was was cheering, of course, to to that. But how are things today? What's happening on the street level for, for average people in South Africa? Henrik, that, that is a huge subject, but, but I, I need to preface it by saying that all the changes that have happened in South Africa did not happen overnight. So they crept up on us. Where once we were a nation of friendly, hospitable, kind, caring people, what happened was the crime got bigger, so you had to build a wall around your house, which meant you were no longer able to see or talk to your neighbors. The crime got worse, so you put electric wiring on top of the eight-foot wall around your house. The crime got worse, so you put in an alarm system connected to an alarm company. You barred all your windows. You, uh, man, but the first thing that ANC did in 1994 was to disarm the white populace. So I told you about our identity books where you had to have your firearm licenses in your identity books. So your firearms were all licensed, and the government had a list, a register of who owned what. So when the ANC took over in 1994, one of their first things that they did was to confiscate firearms. And there was no way you could say you didn't have them because they had a record of them. Now, it was put to you that it was on a sort of voluntary basis, but if your name began, your surname began with an A, then you had to have them handed in by the state, etc. Now, South Africans are a very law-abiding nation of people, and most of them went and handed their firearms in at the nearest police station on the promise that they could then apply for a new firearm license under the ANC rules and they would get their firearm back at a later stage once they had a license. Well, people went by their thousands to apply for these firearm licenses. It is 21 years into ANC rule and there are people still waiting from the beginning in 1995 to now to get that license back. So these firearms are stacked in in strong rooms in police stations all over the country and the police themselves are selling them to criminals or hiring them out by the day to criminals while you wait for your license so your firearm is being used to kill you thanks to the local police station 
So that's one of the things that happened in South Africa. Now, as a direct result of that, you cannot defend yourself. So you put up all these warm walls and, and systems and everything to protect yourself, hopefully. But the law is, is, is in such a way that if a black man breaks in through the roof of your house at three o'clock in the morning and you kill him, you will be arrested for murder. All he has to say is he's looking for work and you may not touch him. Now, there's another thing that happens in South Africa, which, which to me is a terrible thing. If you are on vacation and your house is vacant and a black breaks into your house and takes possession of it, if he has been there for more than 48 hours, when you come back from vacation, you then have to go to the Supreme Court through a whole bunch of smaller courts, but eventually get to the Supreme Court in order to get your house back from the black squatter who has taken over your house. Now, he doesn't have to defend himself. He has no legal fees. He has no problem. He just has to sit in your house, and the longer he's there, the more right he has to it. While you go through this entire um, bank, bank balance destroying process to try and get your property back from this black squatter. So that is another thing that has changed in South Africa. And I saw it in a house next door to me when I still lived in South Africa. This house was taken over by squatters. They then connected their electricity lines illegally to mine, so I was paying for their power. They connected their water to my water lines, so I was paying for their water. And I complained until I was purple in the face. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.